You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. So, yeah. So when I got home, by the time the end of the tour happens, I was recording. I was singing a lot better. And I just had a lot more confidence. So some of the times where in the past I might have like pushed it a little harder and screamed a little bit more now because if you're going to sing something on the album that you can't sing live i don't see the point to do it if you can't pull it off live and i've done that before and i've skipped those songs because my music was so heavy and loud and chaotic and and but it was also what i was hearing in my ears was a lot of noise and a lot of low end so anyway we fixed all that and by the time i got home i was recording and singing and like I was like, oh, I can make the music really heavy, but I can also have my voice be more of an instrument than just be this like angsty kind of like. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians, talk about their lives, music and craft beer. Hope you had a killer weekend. I most certainly did. This Vox and Hops episode is presented by Heavy Montreal. Heavy Montreal are Montreal's premier metal promoter, and I'm very stoked to have teamed up with them to bring you Heavy Montreal Presents Vox and Hops Brutal Montreal 2022, which will be happening in my hometown, Montreal, on September 2nd at Corona theater this year's event features deicide performing their classic album legion in its entirety alongside cataclysm who will be performing their classic album serenity and fire in its entirety as well as with inhuman condition and i am very stoked to announce that we have added the powerhouse undeath to brutal montreal 2022 i can't be more stoked about this tickets for brutal montreal 2022 are flying trust me if you want to come to this year's event you should pick up your tickets now via the link in the description of this podcast because it is going to sell out and you're going to miss out on the chance to hang out with me and enjoy life metal and craft beer in my hometown of montreal it's gonna be a blast don't miss it i'm very stoked to have heavy montreal behind the vox and hops metal podcast now before we jump into today's episode i'd just like to ask you to follow the vox and hops metal podcast on the podcast platform of your choice but more than that i would love for you to rate and or write a review of the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Now, why do I want you to do that? Well, you have to imagine that when someone is looking for a new podcast to listen to, what do they do? They scroll down, they look at the ratings, they read those comments, and if those reviews are favorable and say that I am a great host, that all of my guests are amazing, that I ask excellent questions, well, they may just give that podcast a chance. So by you writing a review, you may actually be the person that helps sway someone's decision to become a brand new Vox and Hopshead, and that would be something that I would truly appreciate. Now, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Tristan Schoen of Author and Punisher. Get ready, everyone. This is Vox and Hops, episode number 360. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today, I'm with Tristan Schoen of Author and Punisher. Uh, Tristan, I am so stoked to be with you. I've been a fan since... uh, 2018, I stumbled across you, probably like a lot of people did, thanks to that Vice documentary. You probably know exactly the one I'm talking about. Uh, let's just start with a very simple, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Just uh, just got back from work, uh, kind of in between tours right now, so I'm just uh, getting some other stuff done in my life. Um, but, you know, prepping for the next tour, uh, yeah, a lot goes into that. You know, we learned a lot from the first couple tours, so it's kind of like, you know, now we're... Uh, the second batch has come around in, uh, in the summer. So how, how complicated is that doing that? And like, obviously you're for cryptopsy. It's, it's extremely difficult just getting ready for a tour, but we have 
nothing compared to the amount of equipment and material and new things that you come up with on each album that you have to translate into a live performance versus a studio performance. So, so it must be much more daunting for you than, than just a four piece death metal band. Well, it used to be, um, although I was always pretty fearless about it. It used to be a lot more daunting. Now it's, I've got this thing sort of, I would, I'm not going to jinx myself and say it's a well-oiled machine, but I've kind of been going with the less is more, um, as of late, because of a, it's so super expensive to take uh, everything that I would, I used to take, and so now I have a setup where I have the things that I really need, um, and I don't take as much other stuff. So when I fly to Europe, I've got uh, four cases. I have a guitar player now; he has one case, um, and uh, then I have tables over there that I, I purchased, and I have tables on the East Coast, and I have tables in San Diego. So I have these sort of customized tables that bolt together that really hold the gear properly. And that's become the most important thing. It's genius, genius technique to do that, to, to, to cut down, but to just like store stuff in different areas that you know you're going to hit in the future anyways. It's very smart. Uh, Flo from Cryptops is thinking about doing the same thing with drum sets, actually. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, I know the Melvins used to do that, but it just got to the point where I was flying in and out of Hamburg and then Berlin, now Amsterdam. And it just got to the point where I was like, uh, trying to find these tables every time was a real problem. Well, when I did find them, I just purchased them. You know, I was like, I'm going to purchase them and store them. And I know exactly what to tell the festivals when I, I need these specific tables, you know, and, and that's the only thing I ask for. Um, I don't even really use speakers on stage anymore because I prefer to use push the PA really hard. And I get like a cleaner, heavier sound rather than kind of stacking guitar cabs on stage, even though they look good. I end up sounding, I think, heavier without them. So. Very, very interesting. I, I think it's you're an artist, an engineer, so something different. You're probably like the, the first that I've had on the podcast, honestly, out of 350, 60 episodes now. So it's cool. I'm excited. Um, shittiest question I'm going to ask you. We will go into much more fun territory after this one. Uh, how did you cope with the glorious years, plural, of 2020, 2021, and now uh, hopefully not the rest of 2022? How, how, how have you been doing? I mean, I was, I, I will say that I'm, I'm lucky. I had a pretty, I've had this stable job that I, that allows me a lot of freedom. It's academic. Uh, I'm a staff uh, engineer working on microscopes with a bunch of scientists. I've had this job since I got out of art school. Um, and they've, as I've gone since 2007, I've sort of like started touring more and more and more. So they've gotten used to it and uh, they allow it. You know, I don't get paid while I'm gone but I get paid a decent amount when I'm touring now more than I used to, you know? So anyway, it was, a the end of my album cycle. We, we, we cut five shows off of the tool tour that I was on, which was a bummer, but I cut, I got lost the Igor tour 42 shows that year. I missed my whole summer uh, festival. Like I never got to do a festival summer in Europe on the Beastland album. Um, so that was kind of a bummer, but, you know, in some ways I had toured six months the year before and I was ready. I, I was actually like, I don't think I realized how ready I was to just sort of step back. And, um, so other than the fact that it was like pretty lonely, you know, it was just my wife and my dog and I, you know, for the whole year we had a, I was able to really focus on the album. So that's what it was for me. I started writing about two months after I got back in May of 2020 
And then I finished writing, you know, about a year later. I finished the album a year later. You were uh, mad hype right up until, and obviously the hype has continued, so so that is a sigh of relief on that. Um, leading up into the pandemic, you were in Australia, you mentioned, with Tool. Uh, you went and hung out with my bassist, Dolly, at the Cattle Decapitation show. In New Zealand, yep. it, it was New Zealand, right? It wasn't Australia. It was New Zealand. Yeah, it was, it was Auckland, and I brought the the tool guys with me. I heard the story. It was fucking Ollie. I was so goddamn jealous. But <laughs> just, well, I didn't know that they were going to want to go, and I I think they just on these tours like that. They didn't, you know, they're probably just sitting in their hotel. Exactly. Room. Yeah. And uh, I just said, hey, I, there's this band I know from San Diego, and they're a killer. I didn't realize how tiny the club was going to be. It was essentially <laughs> like a a basement, you know, <laughs> which for cattle is like, I've never seen them. It was just, that's what they had. I'm not trying to talk down. That band is killing it right now. Mm -hmm. um, but that particular show, I think it was 200 people packed in a, a small place, but those guys loved it. You know, they partied, Danny partied with uh, Dave McGraw the whole night yes. that night, and they were just shooting the shit together. So, so damn cool, and uh, good for you to to bringing you know tour parties together. You had just done the U.S. with Cattle before that, and then here you are in in New Zealand with them, bringing them together, bringing people. I love that. I love that so much. Uh, Vox and Hops is all about hanging out with my metal friends, doing exactly that, talking about life, metal, and craft beer. What beer are you going to share with me tonight virtually? What beer do you have on your side tonight? Well, we've got the, uh, this is the, um, thorn brewing, uh, crawler. And, uh, this is, so this is the official author and punisher beer for the album. It's a black Kolsch 5.0%. Um, I worked with a guy there who right from the beginning, we started talking and I wanted to do a Kolsch and, um, I'll just let you get in there and see, it's got the artwork of Zlatko Mitev. He, he did, he's my friend in San Diego who did the artwork, um, all around it. And uh, we wanted to do a regular Kolsch uh, because that's really the kind of beer I like is, is basically like Kolsch, uh, lager, like Hellas lager. It's like I, all that German stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like a good IPA, um, but I really like that sort of slightly sweet, clean, like lager flavor. And when I had the Kolsch in Cologne, we had a day off and my sound guy, John, and I went and had a just – had some Kolsch in Cologne. We didn't have a show there, or we did, and it was terrible. So we were like, fuck it. <laughs> and uh, it was a delicious, so smooth. It was like silky smooth. Like the carbonation was like not really there. And I loved it so much. So I asked them to do this, and they decided to make it a black Kolsch because they had to make it a slightly more metal. They, they, they can't help themselves, these breweries. They're like, they, they, it's got to be a metal beer. Metal beers have to be either. 12%, 14%, or they're black. There's no one between, and I disagree with that. So it's okay, though. How, how was this black Kolsch from uh, Thorn Brewing? No. It's actually surprisingly light. Um, it does have that sort of metallic um, hint to it. Um, and I, I don't know if that's the, the way they make it black is they add, there's an additive they put in there. And uh, But I kind of like it. It's, it's almost like a little bit of a malty um, the flavor that I remember beer micro beers back in like the late nineties, a lot of in New Hampshire where I grew up had that kind of, they were all malty, you know? And, uh, so it kind of reminded me of that, but, uh, I, I mean, I've drank two cases of it so far since March. So um, <laughs> that's reasonable. <laughs> 
I show up to parties with my own beer. So like, you know. uh, it's it's the way I live, Tristan. I, I do not have one of my collabs tonight, but I do have uh, something very cool from here in Montreal, from Jukebox. They've rebranded their, their classic. Uh, it's a classic microbrewery from here in Quebec, Montreal. Uh, very important back in 2015. They dropped a, a very seminal beer, we would say. Um, their distortion. Uh, then they started sort of losing traction because they also opened another brand called Avant Garde, where they brew everything now and it sort of was cannibalizing jukebox so they did the drastic uh, decision to rebrand the entire thing and they're starting off with classic american styles this is uh, an american pilsner very simple uh 5.5 i'm gonna crack this and i would love to hear about your very first beer do you remember the very first beer that you ever drank um my dad is a it actually makes wine he, so in his retirement he's got we have a they have a farm in new hampshire and he planted it's like an old colonial house with some, you know, uh, a bar. And he always made maple syrup and, and he always made a hard cider, but he, he's made beer in the past and they were going to start a microbrewery. I think they were going to call it Peckerhead Ale. This was back in like the late eighties and nineties. It never happened. They probably should have done it because it probably would have been. They should have done it. <laughs> um, I think like there was like Harpoon and maybe Magic Hat back then, but there wasn't much. Um, but anyway, before that he was drinking, my dad was all about cheapest beer he could find for the most quantity. So it was probably like golden anniversary or something. Never. I've never um, heard of that one. And then, yeah, hey, look it up. Golden anniversary or uh, Schlitz. When, they heard, had yeah. a car in their barn and, and the trunk. I remember opening it was from the 70s, 60s, late 60s and 70s when he got out of Vietnam and was traveling to New Hampshire. And he it was full of Schlitz cans. It's still in the barn. If you open it up, it's full of Schlitz <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, what, do you, what was your first beer? Do you, was it your dad the beer that your dad brewed? I think it was probably no. It, well, it might have been. It might have been the beers he brewed, but his beers that he brewed weren't great. Um, you know, you'd open it up, and then half of the beer would would fly out of it, and then you get about a half of it. <laughs> but like when we'd have camp, you know, there'd be like we'd go camping with the local friends in like seventh and eighth grade, and we would. Uh, the easiest beer to get was my dad's homebrew because there was so much of it in the basement that hadn't been successful, but it still got you drunk. And so we would just always go and take that. And it's free. But then you didn't know if you were going to get a beer or a cider or a root beer because I made root beer. Uh, so, it was, but you know, it got, it got you drunk and you don't really have hangovers when you're like 13 years old. So. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be getting hangovers at thirteen years old. Any thirteen-year-old listening to this, don't get hangovers. Don't drink. Wait till a little bit later. Let's go, Bob. Showing homebrew. Let's just say that that was that was the first beer. <laughs> I like it. Uh, at what point did you become more refined, or have you become more refined in your beer selection? Absolutely. I mean, I would say uh, maybe. I think it was when I started going to. I mean, always craft beer. I was into the San Diego has a huge IPA scene, obviously, but you know, Ballast Point and, uh, you know, Thorn Brewing and um, Stone, obviously. But that stuff, you know, um, this is like a broken record probably to your listeners and stuff, but as you get older, it starts to it starts to hit you a little harder. And, at, and from going to Europe, my first agent over there was, is based in Hamburg, and um, Neurosis connected me with this guy. And so he, he, would, he connected me with this uh, St. Augustiner Hellas Lager, it, that, and it's the you can see it because it's it's this bottle and it's blue and there's like this I can't remember the label you can get them in all the but it's the best and once I had that and started drinking that on a nightly basis over there on tour compared to the beers over here that I drink on tour I'm like 
the hangovers were like the, the cleanliness of the beer, you know, Absolutely. And it, it kind of changed my mind. So that's it. Probably 2000, 2013 to 14, 15, something in that zone when I started going over to Europe more. Well, luckily there's a lot more Kolsch's and Hellas's coming and making trends over here in North America for you now. Because most hop heads, it's tip- the typical beer drinker route. You get into the hazy IPAs, and then you're just crazy about those for, let's say, a year and a half, two years, because they're sweet, and they get you drunk, and they're delicious. And then you get like palate fatigued almost on them, and you just want to go back to a classic American Pilsner, <laughs> something clean. Yeah, exactly. Cheers. And sorry, I've switched up my cheers. I've switched <laughs> What's up that to one, yeah. I don't know. I think she got this at uh, Trader Joe's. It's a German uh, imported Peter's brand classic, a Dutch style Pilsner imported made in Germany. I don't know, but it's good. It's one of the classic European, like double, I would call it like double barrel, you know, um, 16 ounce, a one pint, official one pint. I love it. It's like, that's, that's the standard size up here in, in Montreal. I love that. Uh, I would love to hear about the soundtrack of your youth. When you were growing up in your parents' and guardians' house, what music was playing? When you were not in control of the radio, what music did your parents or guardians listen to? Uh, it was these reel-to-reel. Well, at Christmas, it was the Messiah, but that was on the record. But it, it, it was my dad, the reel-to-reel. He got a reel-to-reel when he was in Vietnam. He bought it in Japan when he was stationed there. And so he would. He had all these, like, Joan Baez, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, it was all that kind of, like, more folk stuff you know and then i he also had some records of like led zeppelin that was probably like the heaviest thing was like led zeppelin um a lot of beatles and then when i got into and then you know the seventh and eighth grade there was like some of that hair metal stuff that my friends listened to but it wasn't until the heavy until i got into high school because i grew up on a farm you know i was far i was about a 45 minute drive from my high school so once i got there then I heard other music and it was like the Melvins and, uh, and Sepultura. And those were the bands that I first heard. And I was like, Oh, you know, it definitely was like, nobody in my family listened to anything heavy. When I heard that, it was like, boom, you know, like it definitely triggered something in me, you know, it's like Pandora's box. Yeah. And people were like, why did you get into heavy music? You know, like, and I'm just like, I didn't, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't even a scene. You know, (laughs) it wasn't like, it was like a, a metal hardcore scene. I mean, there was, I found it, but when I got into that stuff, it was just like listening to WUNH, the radio station. Um, and then listening to stuff, my Fugazi and helmet and ministry that my friends would like play in the car. 90, probably 92, 93. When, when you brought this music back into your home at back to the farm, what was your family's reaction to it? Oh, they're they're, they, they didn't really particularly like it, but they've always been supportive. Um, they, they, my dad and mom have come to a lot of my shows and, um, they let us practice like in the living room and, um, my friends, yeah, we, we were, they were always, they've always been and still are very supportive. Amazing. My parents are the same. I, I used to jam in my room and my dad would sleep upstairs and he would find it calming somehow, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is cool, I, which is cool. <laughs> he still comes to the shows now. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, that Cryptopsy show is a different show than, well, I guess they're both heavy, but you know, the death metal shows are definitely like, it's a, it's a specific person who, who can consistently go to those shows. Yes. I, I position him in a safe place that that's, that's, 
priority number one. I, I highly dislike playing home shows. I don't know about you. I, I do not like playing home shows or hometown shows. I find them more stressful because there's more pieces to the puzzle than a standard tour show, let's say, because you got to take care of the family, put them in that safe spot. Cause I'm so worried that they're going <laughs> to, I played as an example, I played a show in Paris, a coworker. I'm an early childhood educator. I don't say a lot on the podcast, but I am, um, came out to the show in Paris and she wanted to stand right in front of me. And I was like, you can't stand here. You have to go over there behind that pole. Please just go over there behind the pole. And luckily she did. Cause the place just went like, and it was like a yeah. instant, instant tsunami of bodies flying everywhere. So, I don't, how do you feel about hometown shows or shows where you know people are there? Is it is it more stressful? Is that a stress for you? Yeah. I mean, now the hometown is, uh, it used to be Boston and New Hampshire, but now it's San Diego since 2000, um, since 2004. But, uh, but they're both kind of hometown shows. And the San Diego ones, for sure, the guest list starts <laughs> popping off with like... And like work people are writing to you and saying like, Hey, can we, can we go out? Will you have time to have dinner before your show? Or like, we, we got reservation. We'd love to have you along reservations at eight. You know, the show doors are at eight, you know, you're like, no, I'm not even going to see you. I, I don't want to sell shirts tonight. I don't, you know, I'm, there's no reason why I'm here, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it ended up that this last one at the, uh, the Casbah in San Diego was great, but it was kind of like, I, at some point I just had to disappear in the green room because there were so many fa- so many faces that were, that I wanted to see and people that I love. And it takes like a, like a, a mental moment to prepare for a show. And, and not everyone understands that. Oh, it takes a mental moment. Luckily we were, it was the last show of the tour. And we, we had our set down and I wasn't stressed about gear. And, um, so, and I had some friends helping me out, but, um, it was like, I'm glad nothing went wrong because it, I wouldn't have been in the headspace for it. I was too much in like trying to take care of everyone. <laughs> On that note, I'd love to hear about your very first show, the show that you went to go see. Do you remember the first live musical experience that you saw? Well, the ones with my, I would say there's two parts of that. There's the ones I went to with my parents, which were a lot of like folk bluegrass. And we had a music festival at our house in the backyard and in the, in the we had like 25 acre, like, you know, fruit trees. And I mean, this was often like, you know, the country, you know? And so we, we would have the, all the local people come and play. So I would, I would do some songs. I would play with my dad and then his, him and his kind of friends, but like, you know, and then like rich, I think it was Richie Havens maybe might've been one of the first ones or Crosby Stills and Nash. But the music that I ended up liking the first concert was, uh, I think the first one I remember is Sam Blackchurch with Fugazi and uh, Shudder to Think, which was probably like 90, uh, maybe 95. And that was like in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And that's a killer show. Sam Blackchurch is like a legendary um, band from there on there. Do you remember that moment standing in that room, looking around at the people around you being like, first off, like who are these people? And like, these people are my people. Is that, is that a, like a memory that you had? I don't know. I, I don't know that I was probably a little bit more apprehensive than that, to be honest. Um, I think it was such a big show. It wasn't a small show. If I had done like there was, there is a local hardcore scene that was in the, the town over from me that I started to go to pretty shortly after that. And that was much more like, Oh, these were all high school kids. 
um, who were into the same stuff. But that show in particular, we we're like people that had been in that scene for a while. So they were, they were much more intimidating. I was, I was a little bit intimidated being like 13 years old, going to that show. Um, big, you know, guy was crawling up yeah. on the rafters and like, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, I wasn't ready for it. Little did you know <laughs> what would yeah. be coming up well, in the I'm years to come. Calm. You won't see me in the pit very often. I'm usually in the back. I'm a pretty mellow. I say that as well. And I've said it many times on the podcast, but I did find myself jumping into the crowd during Exciter's set at Manitoba Metal Fest a few weeks back. And uh, cheers to the guy that found my hat. I only have one hat now and it's this one. Um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned playing songs with your father. Now talk to me about that. Talk to me about learning music uh, with him and then performing it and uh, the vibe that you had. And, and were you prepared? Were you nervous? Are you a nervous person to perform? is also a part of that question. I'm not super nervous when I have it down. Um, he and I basically, this was just like a little kind of, we would, we would play in the living room and uh, I'm more of a piano player. He's more of a guitar player, but I can play guitar. I'm like, you know, I can strum chords and power. I used to play guitar in a band and bands and sing, but it was all like power chord grindy stuff. And, but yeah, playing with him is great. We play like Beck songs and uh, we'd play Beatles songs and, Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's really fun. He's a really good singer. And now my brother's getting into it. Um, he hadn't been. He's always very musical, but he's starting. He picked, I gave him my acoustic. He's back east. Um, and so now he's really into it, which is cool. So I go home, we'll like learn Neil Young songs. Amazing. And, and do it all together, the three of you. Yeah, not well, yeah. I'm usually either at my brother's or my dad's. So we haven't really kind of done it together, but uh, I've, doing it with, with them separately for now but uh maybe eventually we can get the full show and the full show and band together that's so cool my my dad loves music but he he was never musical so so i'm jealous of that and that, that sounds really really cool to have had the, the chance and the chance to continue doing that hey what's up fox and hops heads i just want to take a little moment about cryptopsy's upcoming tours that's right i'm talking about the scream of perseverance tour and our headliner dates that coincide with that tour called As Summer Burns. The Scream of Perseverance tour is kicking off at the end of May and runs all the way until the end of June. We are supporting the mighty death to all. We are going all over the United States and we are hitting some of Canada. So excited to be honoring the legendary music of death alongside amazing musicians that performed on these albums. Even more stoked to be doing some headliner dates in some cities that I've actually never played in. If you are planning to come to any of these shows, you should definitely grab your tickets by going to voxandhops.com slash summer, and you will be able to grab all of your tickets there. That's voxandhops.com slash summer. Do it, people. Come hang out with me. Enjoy life, metal, and craft beer in your hometown. Come to a show. We're going to have a great time. Now, enough about all of that. Let's get back to the episode. Uh, I'd love to hear about your first show, your first time on stage, that that 13-year-old kid that went to the, the show that was too much, then the hardcore scene. I, I'm assuming that eventually you found yourself on that hardcore scene stage. It was probably the next step. Yeah. Well, yeah, the first band was actually a high school band. I mean, actually, the first thing was playing piano and recitals and stuff. And I had a singer. We would do like seventh and eighth grade. We, I would play piano and he would sing. But that wasn't really like a stage. It was school performances. So then like the first rock band was a talent show <laughs> with a, at the, at the school where we played a, uh, the cure 
the forest and I sang and played keyboards and, uh, and then that band kind of went along, but the first one of the, the heavy band was basically a band called empathy test where there is a band called empathy test out now. Um, but, uh, that's more of a synth way, like a, I don't know. They're, they're more like a, uh, synth wave kind of band, but, uh, we were a different band and we were more industrial. So I programmed the SR 16 Alesis drum machine would play guitar and, and the other guy sean mccumber is actually a writer for decibel now um he yeah if you look him up he, he's done some some big stories in decibel he he does he likes a lot of death metal and um but anyway he he and i were in a band we had a bass player and so the three of us would play with the drum machine and we used to play at a place called safe and sound in rochester new hampshire which is about 20 minutes away all ages all ages straight edge kind of place and uh yeah we, we got to play some pretty good shows. I was not, I was never really nervous with that band. I didn't sing. I played guitar. The beats were already programmed, but, um, <laughs> and then going away from that and having bands with, with members and then going back to the drum machine, because I, I love the consistency, um, <laughs> of the drum machine because you don't have to deal with the drummer. <laughs> A few notes on that. Uh, I was going to yeah. say that it's funny that you automatically went towards, an electronic drummer and and it, it just makes me think like p- young people that want to make music try to like find members and you automatically in your mind were like we don't need a drummer i know how to do this so not you right even at that point there was nothing that was going to hold you back because you wanted to create music which is interesting it's it was basically godflesh because we mm. were both huge godflesh fans and it was selfless the album selfless I had come out and I loved a couple of those songs on there. And I loved the way that the, I didn't even know about like electronic drum and bass and jungle and dubstep and all the music that I really got into. But um, I didn't even know about that stuff at that time, but I loved the way that the kick drum sounded. And, um, and when I play it through the PA systems, it was just so cool. You know, you can get like a lot tighter with, you know, your chugs because no, kids that are that young aren't playing like double kick drums and stuff that well. No. <laughs> and, they're, and, they're, and at those clubs, they're not miking up kick drums either. So it always just sounded terrible and they don't know how to tune their drums. So I was like, Oh man, these are perfect. You know? So you, you guys were automatically sounding better than all the other young bands. Yeah. For, except that we had <laughs> other problems, but you know, in general, but it was really, we played the, the biggest show we played, I think was with, um, his heroes gone. And that was, uh, this band that later became tragedy. Um, and that was in uh, Troy, New York. Cause I ended up moving out there for school in RPI um, in Troy, New York. Uh, young drummers, um, you have a hard job. So, so don't drink too much because that, that will definitely, <laughs> that will definitely impede uh, your ability to, to hit well and play on time. I, that, that's, that was the other note. I want to talk about that. Uh, Cruller came out back on February 11th via relapse records. Uh, talk to me uh, about this record. I, been a fan since 2018, as I mentioned earlier, Beastland. Uh, I wrote you a message immediately uh, when I did discover you and uh, told you how much I enjoyed it. And then here comes this new one, and it's I find it's different. I like it. I like it very much, honestly. But there's it's way more... It's heavy as fuck, but there's a lot more clean vocals going on. Can, can you talk to me about that approach, and how much does that have to do with touring with Tool? God, you know, it was... Uh... I think I, I think from being on that tour, and it definitely had something to do with the tour, because it wasn't my intention to 
come back from the tour, like, Oh man, I gotta do, I gotta sing cleaner. I just, um, the whole tour we were, so from starting on the first night in San Diego, we did 12 shows in the U S and now we did like 10 shows in Australia starting in the first night. I had a sound guy and a, and a, um, and a monitor engineer and a, and a stage tech and a lighting person. So I had more people than I'd ever had. And my wife did the tour manager. (laughs) So I had some people helping me. So we had everything sounding pretty good, but, um, I was recording every set and there were some moments where I was just like, man, the vocals, they don't sit very well. And they're also, there were some moments on the singing parts where either I couldn't tell because it was so loud in there and the bass trapping everything. And even with the, what do you call it? The, um, the, the subwoofers and the setup in the, the way so you don't hear this, the bass behind you. But I um, can't remember the word for that. I wasn't able to hear myself or I was singing flat. And so their monitor engineers were, and after a couple of shows, we kind of got to know them better. And I really, they let me listen to Maynard's um, mix through my ears. And so I would come down and they'd plug me in. So I didn't do it that often, but I wanted to hear what he was hearing. Wow. So like I've goosebumps just imagining doing that. Lucky man, Tristan. Yeah. Well, they, it was cool. I mean, they, they, their monitor engineers and honestly, the whole crew warmed up to us. At the beginning, they saw all these people coming in and we were a mess with all these weird instruments and we were a pain in the ass because it took forever. But um, so I got to listen to it. And what I noticed was, A, the there was no low end at all. Like everything below like 150 hertz was just gone. And so I love low end. And so, and then also the vocals had no effects on them. The guitar sounded very plucky. The bass was more like you could hear the pitch, but there was no low end. And his, and, and the vocals were pretty loud. And so I started to mimic some of that stuff. And every night I would talk to them more and more. And, uh, and immediately it was like my vocal pitch got better and I was more confident. And uh, also getting rid of the stage speakers that I had next to me, cause they're just blaring at me and you didn't need them in that room anyway. Um, so yeah. So when I got home, by the time the end of the tour happens, I was recording, I was singing a lot better and I just had a lot more confidence. So some of the times where in the past I might have like pushed it a little harder and screamed a little bit more now, because if you're going to sing something on the album that you can't sing live, I don't see the point to do it. If you can't pull it off live and I've done that before and I've skipped those songs because my music was so heavy and loud and chaotic and and, but it was also what I was hearing in my ears was a lot of noise and a lot of low end. So anyway, we fixed all that. And by the time I got home, I was recording and singing and like, I was like, Oh, I can make the music really heavy, but I can also have my voice be more of an instrument than just be this like angsty kind of like, um, so anyway, it was just, it was kind of a natural progression. And, uh, also I, 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 I retooled, I bought a lot of new gear, um, for that tour, um, a new sound guard. So I was able to split my sound out. And now I have this kind of like bigger, I feel like a, like a heavier low end sound. So very interesting. And I think, I think it is a good thing. Is it like, it adds more colors to the palette. I can still scream. I still do it from time to time, but, um, it's actually, I enjoy playing these songs live a lot more because I'm, I, I just have more confidence with the way that I know it sounds the way it should sound. It's just, and it's more colors to, to the whole band in, in general. And for a live experience, you're definitely going to still play those older tracks that have the harsh stuff. So it creates like a more ambiance for us, a live music performance as well. Yeah. Even for the older stuff, I, I I'm, I'm, do, I'm more confident. They, those tracks sound better. Um, 
I also bought a, um, a this U at Universal Audio card, which has these preamps, and uh, I'm able to do some processing. And I redesigned my microphone to have better. Uh, I used to have these eight uh, electric condenser, like little microphone capsules that I that I purchased, like on Mauser, and put in there, and they sound okay. But um, they, I compared it to like a nice microphone that I bought for recording the album, and it was no comparison. So I I had to basically trash that or get rid of the microphone and make a new one that had much higher quality capsules. You, you, you have like a whole extra level of complications than a normal musician. And I love that because it, it's, there's, there's like what you can actually physically do. And then there's the actual sound of it. And, and it's not like you're just going to go to the store and pick out a new guitar. You, you have to make it, but that comes in with being a, you know, a mechanical engineer. It's also another passion of yours. So. Yeah, and, and it's a little frustrating sometimes um, because a lot of festivals and places aren't, I don't know, they think you're so complicated that they don't um, <laughs> want to, they don't put give you a, a proper slot. They think you're going to be a liability or they think it's going to take you a long time to get on stage. And so I've gotten to the point now where I can set up faster than any band. Like you cannot, you cannot set up faster than me. And I, And if they give me a bad slot, I'm very vocal about it. And I just want to make sure that it's like, hey, man, I've worked very hard to make this like us, you know, to work smoothly. I totally agree because I that's in that first message that I wrote you in 2018. I said, I'd love to tour with you, but I won't help you load in. I don't... <laughs> yes. No, and it's not bad. No, I mean, dude, it, it's almost like people get annoyed because they see that I don't have enough gear. Mm. They were like, where's the big disc or where's this? And I'm like, just listen when I'm up there. Just listen to the music. OK, that's that's another issue, too, that you had to deal with is that, that the, the people are expecting to see the spectacle yep. on stage. And we did that for the first 10 shows of tool. I had all of my gear. I actually like made a custom racking setup so that I could have like everything because I, those guys invited me. I wanted to make sure that it was like, boom, you know, like, Hey, I put all of everything I could into this. But when we went to Australia, I didn't have the same financial like deal with them. So I had to pay for some of that. And I was like, you know what, we're going to go to my normal touring setup, which is smaller and dude, it was way better. And for me personally, I, it was like less to think about, less things went wrong. I performed better. So I, I you know, if I get another big tour like that, I'm not going to go big. I'd rather spend money in like a, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just, I, I have this stuff that I need to play to make it happen. I have two keyboards, a slider, which I call mini rack, which is like a pitch controller. Um, my microphone, which has used to have eight. Now it has three mics. And then I have the rails, which I play the drums with. Um, and then I have my rack, which is probably the most complicated thing I have, which is all the, you know, the effects and the sound card, um, four cases. That's it. Uh, flow is a difficult drum setup. He has people and has in the past and has right now with Ultimus a drum techs. Let's say, is, is, is that ever a, a point in your life that you'll be able to trust someone enough to set everything up and you just walk on stage and it just works? Well, I had a tech with me who's my business partner and one of my closest friends. He, uh, and we did it together. And, mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm talking like really away. And then you're just trusting yeah, someone. like not even there. Mm -hmm. And you just come and set up. Yeah, we could do that. I, John Coda, who's my sound guy now, who also works with like Red Fang and Big Business, and he, uh, we've gotten to the point now where there's three of us, and so I will, uh, if I'm too busy doing something else, he can set everything up and break it down. 
but I, I just don't have it in me to let make somebody do that, you know, not yet. <laughs> because I, I, throughout the whole conversation, the, the thing that I keep hearing is the stress of things not working properly, more so than the performance. Yeah, because so much of it is custom made, once the stuff gets, we're actually, we started a company and we're, we're design, redesigning some of these things to be more, uh, you know, mass produced, um, you know, designed by another engineer who does more product design. And uh, that's, those products will be more rock solid. Mine have exposed electronics and there's a couple of wires soldered on here and there. So um, before a big festival or a big show, I really need to test that out and kind of go through a bunch of tests that only I know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is this the first album that you mixed, Crueler? No. In fact, the only two albums that I didn't mix were um, Beastland and Milk and Honing, the Which one was, with Phil and Selma. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Everything else I mixed. And then you coming back and taking the reins on that. How much of that had to do with because you wanted to do it or because of the pandemic? No, we actually, Jason, who I was talking about before, his butt goes as Viter, Jason Began, he and I, he did a lot of the electronics. Um, he and Phil Scrosso are the two other co-writers on the album. Like, I think I had like, I mean, I wrote the songs, but those guys came in and he wrote guitar and then Jason wrote some synth parts and sounds and stuff. So he was going to mix it. But then it turned out that it was like, we were getting a little low on time and I really wanted him. There was so much more creative stuff I wanted him to work on. So I said, I kind of made this decision. I was like, well, why don't I mix it? And you just keep throwing me. Ideas and stuff. Stuff. Very cool. Yeah. And, and I'm really glad we did it because I feel like on Beastland and Milk and Honing, they sound, they sound good in their own ways. Like they sound like um, they, they're unique in the way that the guy who mixed them, I think is like, like Kurt made it sound like gnarly and like, um, and Super then Phil's, dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dirty. And it, I wouldn't have mixed it that way because I like it to be low, the low end to be bigger. So I had to, you know, since I had so much time, I was like, you know what? I'm really excited about doing this. Uh, and Phil Scrosso, who was my manager, um, he's not now because he's, because as dying is touring again and he's got to focus on that, but he was a little worried about it, you know, because I'm not like a, I'm not an engineer, that type of engineer, mm-hmm. but it was fine. You know, I learned a lot. I had endless time. Um, so it, it worked out and it, it sounds exactly like I wanted it to sound. That's amazing. Like nobody. Yeah. So, uh, I feel like I almost want to go back and remix some stuff from the olden days. Very cool. I was, I was heading towards that exactly. And also towards if other bands or other artists were interested in having you mix stuff, would that be something that would interest you in the future? Yeah, I would do it. Yeah, sure. It's, it's not necessarily the most, like, I don't have much time right now between this business that we're opening. Like I barely have enough time to work on that and, uh, and go see my family and hang out with my family. So author and punisher, I will not be joining another band (laughs) probably ever. Uh, or, uh, so it's not like I'm looking for opportunities there. I just want to do author and Punisher and tour. I don't want to do anything else. With anybody. <laughs> that means that author and Punisher is working. So congrats on that. Uh, your lyrics, uh, are, seem to be meaningful. Um, seem to always have something behind it. Um, powerful of the sower, um, is, is something that inspired the drone track uh, to talk to me about writing lyrics that mean something. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, they don't always mean something. In fact, terror bird is the most popular song I've ever had, you know, listen wise. And 
I don't say anything in that song. It's just uh, how, how just, like like there's just no lyrics. Yeah, it's just sound effects. Oh, um, got it. Yeah. And, and a lot of songs I've had like that, like uh, the song Flesh Ants, and you know, just like using your voice as an instrument. Um, but yeah, just with the pandemic and you know, you know, fascism and political issues and climate change, and I don't know, you know, I'm not necessarily the a preachy person, but I definitely feel like those are the types of books that I like to read or, or, or comments on current events in sort of uh in sci-fi or f- fantasy or sort of uh, dystopic environments that's i just i just can't get enough of that stuff so yeah i like to like kind of apply like parable of the sower or uh, nk jemison um, broken earth trilogy i like to kind of like think about that as our future or like compare it to where we are now and you know that summer with these trucks driving around with Trump flags and basically like everything except, you know, like a machine gun turret on the back of the truck. That's, that's this, you know, album, you know, like survivalist kind of a societal breakdown. I just feel like that was a moment where we, we were like thinking about that stuff. Hmm. It's, it's important to showcase and, and, and for yourself as well as a cathartic release for you to process what the hell was going on at the same time too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what we were doing. We were going to protests. We were, um, my wife does that for a living. She's a, she's a climate activist, like does videos. And so I'm, she kind of keeps me very, uh, tuned and always checks me whenever I think things are going well, she always makes sure I know that they aren't on that wonderful, <laughs> uplifting, uh, topic. Uh, we will dance into your dub machines. So talk to me about that. You've mentioned it a few times, but I have a whole, I want to talk about the whole thing right here. Uh, making these machines, these MIDI machines, MIDI controllers, heavy metal MIDI controllers, uh, for home use for, for other people to use. Is that ever something that you ever thought you would do when you were just tinkering around creating them for yourself back in the day? Yeah, I've always thought about it. You know, I actually made these big knobs. I made some to sell, but they were like way not ready for showtime when I, when I tried to sell them back in like 2010. But I had thought for a moment, not, not realizing how much, how like, um, I was not ready to do that, but also like, do, did I want to do that? Because if you make one piece of art for yourself to use, that's cool. But if you make it for other people, all of a sudden somebody's going to complain to you that it's not working properly or, um, people might, I'm going to be bothered all the time, emails about stuff not working. So it was really just, I didn't want to deal with the hassle. It, you know, I know people that have companies and it's not a, it's not a lucrative business. First of all, like making musical instruments is not a way to get rich. Um, I, I think the best case scenario for us is like not that great, but it's fun. And I feel like we, our stuff is going to be super high end. Um, they're going to be really expensive because we're not cutting a lot of corners and materials, you know, um, we're making, uh, stuff that is, you know, there is plastic parts cause you have to have plastic, but for the most part, the things that you touch will be made out of stone and wood and steel, um, ball bearings and chains and very heavy, you know, uh, Pelican cases and, uh, you know, die cut foam. And just like, also I'm really into like touring and making sure that gear is like rugged and airplanes, um, rack mountable thinking about patch bays. Like 
So like this stuff is not, I mean, it will be for people that are studio people. You can, but for the most part, like I'm really thinking about like making things that will never break for you on tour and they're open source. So you can swap out parts and, uh, people can share code when they program the devices. Um, but yeah, it's called drone machines, which is named after my 2010 album. It's taken a little longer to get it going than I was hoping. What what are the main, main complications in launching something like this? That we all have other jobs. Um, it's not really the, there is a supply chain issue with electronics. Like the, 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 the main, um, teensy microcontroller that we're using is like the computer and the brains. Basically, the one we chose is already like you can't find them anywhere. We bought 20 of them for our prototypes, but like now we have to, there's a chance we're going to have to like completely redesign the electronics because chips are just like you can't buy anything um, like you could before. So, yeah, and it's just time. It's like I have an, another engineer and then Jason, who's the synth guy. So I'm sort of like, generally coming up with these like ideas together with those guys. And then Adam takes the general CAD that I made and makes it into a product. So like we have the key that slides, but he's made it. So it's like has a little axis in the other direction and it's touch sensitive and has after touch. Um, and then like, he'll send me the key and I test it and I send it back. And then uh, it's just between the three of us, like we're all doing this like at night and extra hours because uh, we have other jobs. So I, anyway, we're, we've almost got all three of the devices are completely designed. We just need to get them like all tested before we actually drop the money and have the final production run. Uh, realistically, uh, you must have that answer for this. When, when do you think people can actually start purchasing these? God, it's realistically, I would say like next spring, which there's a, there's a, a, synth, con- a synth kind of like almost like NAM that happens in uh, Berlin called Superbooth. And it's like, that's a lot of modular synth and, um, you know, techno area, techno uh, city. So that's kind of like our goal is to is present at that, uh, at that thing. Awesome. Shout out to Andrew Wong, the YouTuber for <laughs> making me know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, sick. Because I watch his content. Um, <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I've been doing a new segment since uh, for the past month or so uh, about mental health. Um, I'd like to know about how you cope with when you're not feeling well. What, what steps do you take to make yourself get out of the darkness? We'll start with that question. I mean, yeah, I would say playing music for sure has been something that like I don't, uh, what I can go to the studio and kind of, blow off some steam and play loud music. Um, there's also a community down there of people, a few people that are pretty much will show up if you write to them, you know, that, okay, like, hey, I'm just going to be testing out this microphone and they'll come down. Basically we just drink like some beers and hang out. Um, but yeah, in, in just exercising and I do, I got into a lot of hiking and surfing throughout the pandemic and that helps a lot. Amazing. San Diego and, life. Uh, yeah, the San Diego life for sure. <laughs> Trying to keep my friends around, you know. My friends are really, are really great. You know, my wife and I like constantly are discussing these things. So, when you feel like your friends are down in the dumps, what what do you do? What 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 when you feel like your friend needs something? What is your technique to make them feel better? Well, I just. I just try to keep in contact with them. You know, like I've had some friends lately that have definitely been down the dumps and had relationship problems and had, 
uh, through the pandemic, especially. And we just keeping, you know, keeping constant contact and like uh, work, you know, sort of do projects together. And um, that's all I can do, you know, especially there was a, there's been some, some people in San Diego that have been going through some really hard times lately. And I think it's really made the whole community much more aware. So we're all like, somebody says something that's a little bit weird. You know, there's, there's no, like, ah, I'm sure he's fine. Like we're like reaching We're like, there's text messages going around. Like, Hey, is somebody around there? Go see what's going on with him and or her. So it's just community. I feel like, yeah. And you know, get people should in getting therapy. Although I know it's really hard for people to find therapists right now. Yeah. So I've definitely done a little bit of that for sure. And I have no problem, you know, getting in touch with a therapist when I need to. There, there's no shame in being a vulnerable human. Everyone listening. Oh. Oh, it's very nice to talk to somebody about all your bullshit problems, even if they have to do with like with gear. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all, how many, how many hours do you have? <laughs> Like how long am I allowed to talk about gear in this therapy appointment? Amazing. Do you know anything about Do you know anything about audio drivers? Um, you, you, San Diego now, hiking, um, surfing. Do Do you still play hockey at all? Yeah. Well, when I'm home, I don't play out here. Although there are people who play at the hockey rinks, I just can't bring myself to to play at the. Uh, let's say hockey in San Diego, but I play pond hockey when I'm home. Cause I know it was a big, sure. a big sacrifice back in the day to, to go to a Catholic school being an atheist, even that young, but it was all for the, yeah. the joy of playing hockey. So, so cheer, cheers to that <laughs> sacrifices yeah, at a young age. I, I do not. I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible Canadian, but uh, I do like hockey. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I, I, I was, I was a late bloomer. So, you know, I was always skating, but playing organized hockey, I think I was like sixth grade. So that would be like, um, I don't know, 12 or something. 12, 11, exactly. 12. Yeah. So my stick skills weren't as good, my finesse, but I was good enough to get on the high school team. I was like, maybe on the senior year, I might've been on the first line, but I was fast. And so I was not scoring a lot of goals, but I was aggressive and could they, I'd kill the penalty basically. <laughs> I like that. Just chase people around. <laughs> Um, but if I got a breakaway, if I got a breakaway, everyone just was like, oh, no, he's going to botch it. <laughs> yeah, just right into the glass, you know. His gear is going to fuck up. It's not the performance, yep. it's the gear. Back to Cruller, uh, the Portishead cover. When I first heard that, I was like, oh, shit. And I love that record, so. That's one of the best records of all time. And, my, and you know, that one, especially like the Roseland live album. Oh, I, I dude. Really yeah, and, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I always want. I did that song in 2007 when I had a bass player, and I, you know, it was totally different. But um, it's actually a funny story about Travis from Catalog Capitation. So he and I had always talked about um, sort of crossover music because he's from San Diego, and we'd see each other out of shows, and we always wanted to do a collaboration. And he's into like a lot of noisy stuff. So when we were on tour with them, we were we, I had the Portishead cover pretty much programmed. Um, that was 2019 and we kept trying to do it at a show. He was going to sing it. We were going to go record it, but he didn't have time to do it. So it was very close to becoming, uh, Travis was going to sing on that track. Oh, and that would have been so sick. I know he didn't want to do it the way I wanted to do it though. I wanted to do it real gentle and I think he wanted to take it a little different, <laughs> but I don't know. Don't tell him I said that. Well, if he hears it, but anyway, <laughs> He did see me perform it in Austin because they 
covered. Yeah. They filled in for the locust. Yes, they did. Um, that show. And he, uh, he came up and said, what's up? But then he disappeared because they went out somewhere else. I'm sure you'll find time to collaborate together. Uh, Travis is extremely talented and so are you and San Diego will bring people together as always. Yeah, he's great, man. I love his, I love watching him perform every night. One last question. Classic Vox and Hops wrap up question. Uh, probably doesn't happen to you very often because you enjoy drinking light beers. Uh, but every once in a while it happens to everyone. What is your hangover cure? Well, the, the, the most boring hangover cure is actually uh, surfing if you don't drown because something about the seawater. Um, but only thing is you can't swing very, sing, uh, swim very well when you're hungover. So the drowning thing is a possibility. But if you can get in and swish the salt water around in your face and get a couple waves in the face, you get out of the water. It's completely gone. Interesting. It's crazy. I'll have to try that next um, time. The other option is just is just pound a beer. When I'm in Europe, and we, we got a bunch of beer always in the van, and when you wake up and you know it's going to be one of those drives, you just have to like extend the drinking a little bit. I love that. Another Augustiner straight into Tristan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tristan, thank you so, so much for taking the time, hanging out with me, talking about life, talking about music, talking about craft beer. Uh, I had a blast. I hope you did as well. Everyone, go check out Crueler. Trust me, you're going to love it. I know you've already listened to it, so I don't know I'm saying that. Massive cheers. This was great. Yep. Cheers. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll see you when we're in Montreal. Hell yes. Cheers. All right. Take care. Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. Man, this was an awesome conversation. Such a huge fan of what Tristan does. Love the new record. Love the new direction with the more clean vocals. I am really stoked that we got to open up about that. I can't wait until I see his drone machines on the market. It's just it's such a cool goddamn idea. I love it. Massive, massive cheers to Tristan. Can't wait to hang out again face-to-face. This was a blast. I hope that you had a great time, too. Now, if you enjoyed this Fox and Hops episode, you should sign up to the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast mailing list. You get it on my website, voxandhops.com. That's V-O-X-A-N-D-H-O-P-S.com. When you do that, you shall receive one email a month that contains all of the details of everything that has happened recently in the world of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast. You'll get to see which episodes I've released recently. You'll get to see which episodes I have coming up. You'll get to see which albums the Vox and Hops album review crew have reviewed recently. You'll get to see any information about any projects I have in the works before I announce them to the public. And trust me, I always have a bunch of things going on behind the scenes. You also get to see which albums Jerry Monk, the metal architect himself, has added to the Brutal Awakenings playlist. The most extreme fresh new music that is dropping every week. Jerry listens to it all somehow and he puts it on the playlist for you to enjoy. It's available on both Apple Music and Spotify. The Brutal Awakenings playlist is what you want to be listening to. Trust me. There's just so much going on in the world of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast. I hate for you to miss a single thing, so sign up to the mailing list. The Vox and Hops Metal Podcast is brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcasts. I hope you have a killer rest of the week. I will be back next week with another episode on Tuesday. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hops heads. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, 
And my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.